to Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self-care in the age of resistance. We've been talking about the goal of yoga and the obstacles to liberation lately. Let me just pause and go a little off the cuff here to say part of my goal in having this podcast is to offer tools and new ways of thinking based on yogic philosophy that we can apply to our everyday life in order to survive and resist oppression and the horrors of the current political system. I thought my intention originally would be I would talk about the news and then I would give you a tool specifically to combat that feeling or that piece of thing. As we grow and as we move on, the news is coming really fast and things change really quickly. Also, I'm kind of figuring you guys are getting that everywhere. I'm not a journalist or a newscaster, so do you really need me to rehash the latest? I will always offer you something if I feel like It has benefit to you if I have a take on it that I think specifically can be addressed by a technique that I've been taught through yoga or yogic philosophy. But today, I'm pulling back a little bit, and we have been for the last couple of episodes as we talk about the kleshas, which we'll do again today, pulling back a little bit from the day-to-day, and part of that is for me to maintain my own sanity. So I'd love to hear from you if you have an opinion about that, if you would rather me focus a little bit more on specific events going on in the world, or if you are getting benefit from this broader conversation about how yogic philosophy recommends we live our life. Because I do feel that that philosophy and those specific recommendations absolutely 100% apply to us in the real world today. And I can still believe that without reading you the news ticker. So let me know how you feel. You can go to the site, yogafortherevolution.org, and there's a contact us link. So you can email me there, or you can shoot me a note on Facebook facebook.com slash yoga for the revolution and i'd love to hear from you until then let's dive into the goal of yoga so we talked about the yoga sutras patanjali and the yoga sutras and i'll give a little quote here the goal of yoga is not to obtain something that is lacking it is the realization of an already present reality yoga practice removes the obstacles that obstruct the experience of samadhi or the state of complete absorption. So let's get to that part, removing the obstacles that obstruct the experience of complete absorption. 
What are these obstacles and how do we understand them and remove them and live forever and ever in a perfect absorption and bliss and liberation? Oh my goodness. The means to liberation, according to Patanjali, is to remove the five obstacles or kleshas. That's the stuff I mentioned at the top of the show. These five are ignorance, egoism, attachment, aversion, and clinging to life. You don't need me to read the news ticker to see how ignorance applies to today's world, how egoism applies to today's world, attachment, aversion, clinging to a current way of life. It's all right in our faces all the time. We talked about ignorance in episode 41 and egoism in episode 44. Now we're diving into attachment or desire, also known as raga. So I'm going to include links to those past episodes in the show notes. We've also talked about attachment before, as you may or may not remember. Episode 33 was actually called Attachment, Sam Wheat, and Hamlet. And that was about aparigraha, which is non-attachment, one of the yamas. The yamas and the niyamas make up the moral ethical code of conduct in yogic philosophy. So you won't get very far without observing this code. And so it follows that there's some overlap here. The moral code is the path to liberation. They're one and the same. It's not do this and then do this. It's all the path. It's all the practice and the way, which I think is very convenient and neat. Okay, so attachment or desire. Let's dive in. I want to demystify this a little bit here. Desire itself is not necessarily bad. Wanting something is really underrated in the common interpretation of yogic philosophy. It's demonized. Although in Western culture, especially American culture, wanting something is kind of the driving force behind our whole culture. Let's take the middle path. What about somewhere in between? Where would we be without desire? It would be a bland, lackluster world where we want for nothing and strive for nothing and therefore create nothing and become nothing. It's attachment to desire that gets us maybe in a little bit more trouble, right? Being attached to a certain outcome. You can desire a sandwich But if you then go buy bread and cold cuts and the store is all out of the bread you like and you let that ruin your day, that's where you've kind of gone wrong. If you leave the store empty-handed and bereft thinking only of your would-be sandwich and are so distracted by that desire that you walk into traffic and get hit by a bus, you've let that desire, that attachment take away from the present moment. In this system, in this philosophy, the goal is to be present. So anything that takes away from the present moment is considered not so cool. Remember, Patanjali says that the goal of yoga is to remove the obstacles to complete absorption. And that is oneness, union, existence in the present moment. So the consequences don't even have to be dire Because for us in this discussion, missing out on the present moment is consequence enough. Not being absorbed in the present, being disconnected or distraction, that's the consequence. And that is what will keep us from reaching our goal. The desire itself is not the obstacle. 
You can want a sandwich. Rejoice, O yogis of the world, you can want things. But the recommendation here is to not be driven by the attachment to the outcome of having that sandwich. Does that make sense? Sorry, I'm going so far with the sandwich thing, but I want to break down the desire and the attachment a little bit more. You can really enjoy wanting something or be immersed in wanting it if that is what your present moment is. And for me, the distinction comes in being attached to the outcome. Think again of Arjuna and Krishna. The Gita is all about not being attached to the outcome. Without desire, what would motivate us to act at all? We need some motivator to do something, anything, but then we let it go. Let the outcome go because ultimately we have no control. Even in the yoga world, we come across desire. We desire to be good yogis. We desire to achieve enlightenment or kropos. Or if you're a Christian, you might want to be a good Christian. Nothing wrong with that. We want. We are human. We are constantly looking outside of ourselves for the answers, for salvation or diet tips or career advice or whatever it is. And what I glean from this philosophical system is that we can use our humanity to overcome it. Meaning, instead of being consumed by desire, we can use it as a tool, as a means to a goal. Just like humans learn to take fire and use it for light and for heat and to cook, just like fire, desire can be a tool and it can be dangerous. So I need to pause here, one, because I'm getting very excited and I'm in the middle of a new book and something in it pertains to this conversation and I want to tell you all about it and I'm getting all amped up thinking about it and I don't know how to keep one word ahead of the last. So I may as well stop to remind you what you're listening to and to take a deep breath. You in your perfect ears are listening to Yoga for the Revolution. Thank you for doing that. If you're not already subscribed, you can do so on all the places. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, name one. Take a moment to rate the show. Why not? Go to yogafortherevolution.org for all the show notes and past and future episodes. You can stream them there if you so choose. I mentioned our Facebook page earlier, facebook.com slash yogafortherevolution. And Twitter. We're there too at Y underscore F underscore T underscore R. So recently I went to a screening of The Princess Bride here in New York at the Rubin Museum. Super on brand for me. The movie was presented along with a talk by Ethan Nickturn. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, He's the author of the book, The Dharma of the Princess Bride. Nickturn's a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition and I, of course, will link to this book so you can pick one up. I highly recommend it. Actually, my husband asked me if I wanted to stick around and get it signed because I was really geeking out. And I said no, because, you know, why? Then what am I going to do with that? But now when I think about it, it kind of would have been cool. I never do that, though. I'm always like, how am I adding to this person's life? Like, what can I possibly say that's going to make any difference? I, I don't know. It's embarrassing. So I never get anything signed. But then later on, I think, yeah, that could have been neat. Anyway, Nickturn happens to talk about desire in this book. Uh, It's in the chapter called There Is No Buttercup. And I wanted to share some of it here with you because it dovetails so nicely with what we're talking about. 
First, he goes over kind of what we just talked about a little bit, that enlightenment might seem to come easier if we remove the whole idea of desire. We go live in a cave and just remove desire. We become ascetics. And so there is no pleasure. There is no desire. There is only contemplation. And, you know, maybe that is the way. But his perspective is that this kind of aggressive exclusion might be misguided. What he posits, and I love this, is that, I might quote here, the path of awakening is about the illumination of desire, not its exclusion. What? All right, let that sink in. What if our job was to notice when desire is happening, to notice how we respond? And that is the work to feel it and act appropriately, not to be consumed by it, but to let it teach us something. Can you see why I got all excited? He goes on to talk about the concept of tanha, which is translated as thirst. So thirst in this context is not simply desire, but it's the state or experience of being consumed by that desire so much that it takes over the present moment. Remember the sandwich? And it's that which causes suffering not necessarily the desire itself. Here is Nick Turn again. Like any other emotion, desire is not inherently a problem because desire occurs in the present moment and the present moment is never inherently a problem. So cool. He goes on. Needing there to be a different present moment is when we go astray. If you are naturally experiencing desire, then thirsting for desire to cease is just another form of suffering. Damn. So, good news, desire isn't inherently bad, or good for that matter. It's just natural and human and present, and being with whatever is present is the goal. Desire is not the enemy, which is great, because it's mostly unavoidable. Whether we desire something external, like an object or a person, or external validation from social feed interaction, or if we desire something abstract, like to be good or to achieve something, that's all human. But when that desire becomes sticky and pulls us away from the present moment, that's when the thirst becomes an obstacle to liberation. It's a fine line, but a fascinating one. Remember the idea Nickturn presents. The path of awakening is about the illumination of desire, not its exclusion. The illumination of desire. What does that look like? It's about being conscious of those desires in the moment. Notice the effect a desire has on you. Cultivate awareness around that desire instead of burying it or blindly following it. One way you could bring this into your life is simply to notice when you have a want, right? Maybe not make it too big at first. Let's take this, the desire to check your phone. There it is. It's sitting in your pocket or your purse and maybe it buzzes. You know there's a notification there and you don't know what it is yet. So again, you can do this with anything, but this one is just practical, everyday, small, subconscious, overpowering that it just seems like a fun thing to play with. You can do it with a sandwich or a person or an achievement or anything your mind lands on as a desire. 
Okay, so there's the buzz, there's the notification, and you know a text just came through or whatever it is, and you feel the impulse to check the phone. Maybe you even flinch, move your hand to your pocket. Recognize the desire you feel inside of you. Then breathe. Don't do anything yet. What does that feel like? Now, in this case, it might feel like nothing or it might feel like anxiety. That's okay. Just feel that too. Recognize that. Create some space between the thing you desire, whether that's the phone or the next bite of food or whatever it is. Create some space between that thing and the act or the reaction. What happens if you elongate that space? This is a meditation in its own way. What does it feel like to play here? By delaying the grasping for that thing, it really gives us an opportunity to look at it, to feel it, to kind of hold it in our hands and give it a little bit more examination than we would if we just instantly went for the thing we desired. We know a desire can be motivating and we know we are often controlled by our desires. So this small practice, this exercise, or this meditation can, in really very small ways, start to break the attachment to the outcome and offer us a little bit more space between the desire itself in the moment and then that overwhelming thirst for it. And in this way, we can shed light. We can illuminate our desires. Look at them maybe a little bit more objectively learn from them instead of being distracted or consumed by them. See if you can notice these small moments and illuminate them. Until next time, keep breathing and live to fight another day. Desire, desire, desire.